Let me pray for us. We can jump in to discipline part two. Well, Father, we do pray that you would give us hearts that are humble and wise and careful in the training of our children. Pray that you would, as we talked about last week, make us fearless in discipline, but also gracious in discipline and loving in our discipline. We pray that you would give us a deep and genuine care for the souls and lives of our children, and that would translate into both formative training, but also corrective training, that we would prepare them well to hear your word, prepare them well for the discipline that they will know under your good hand. We pray that you would give us hearts to hear from your word this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So those who were here last week will remember our main idea from last week, which was that faithful parenting requires humble, loving, corrective discipline. And that's with a view to helping our children see the goodness of God, that that's some of what we're helping them do, to see the goodness of God, according to Exodus 34, to strive against sin, to come to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and prepare them for the discipline that the Lord will use to bring about their holiness. It's not that we save our children, we don't, but by God's grace, we can be instruments that prepare their hearts to hear his word, that prepare their hearts by God's grace, even if, when he brings them to faith to, to receive with thanksgiving the discipline that the Lord will certainly bring about in their life, according to Hebrews 12. So we spent a lot of time last week in Hebrews 12. And so if corrective discipline is to be faithfully or faithful, we talked about last week, has to be motivated by love, has to be happening in the context of a loving relationship, has to be centered upon Jesus Christ, meaning the purpose is to help our kids see their need for Jesus, to see their need for God's grace. But it also needs to be humble and truthful and loving and fearless. We talked about all those words last week. And a lot of that had to do with the atmosphere of discipline in our home and the motivation of discipline in our home. We talked about the the place and the point of discipline, of corrective training of children. But this week we're gonna talk about the content of that discipline and namely words and consequences. Words and works. So last week was about the atmosphere of that discipline, the motivation of that discipline. And this week, the content of it words and consequences. And so we could expand that definition of Christ-centered discipline to say this, that it refers to humble, truthful, loving, and fearless use of words and consequences in a healthy relationship in order to alert our children to sin according to Scripture. Help them see their need for the grace of God and Jesus Christ and ultimately restore them to a path of righteousness through Jesus Christ. That's what we're praying that the Lord will use discipline in our homes to accomplish. And so we're just gonna build from what we talked about last week and really make it more concrete by focusing, number one, on words, and number two, on works. Words and consequences. So let's jump in there with use of words. And I think this is the most vital resource God gives to us as parents is words. He gives us many resources, but probably the most vital that he'll give are words. It involves regular teaching about what is right and wrong. That's what parenting is, regular teaching about right, about wrong, about good, about wise, about what is good and evil, about what is wise and foolish in the sight of the Lord, about who God is, how he's created this world, So just consider even Ephesians 4 for a minute. Yeah, turn there if you would to Ephesians 4 if you have a Bible with you. So this is just God talking about the church, about the use of words and how God uses words to grow up his children in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ. So, so see how God says, okay, so that we can all grow up together, so we can all be conformed to the image of Christ together, we speak truth and love. Motivation, love. Content, truth. Last week we talked about motivation. This week we're talking about content. And so parenting is also a regular verbal correction when our children choose what is wrong or choose what is evil or choose what is foolish and we use words to warn them, words to call them back to what God desires, what what is right, what is good, what is wise in his sight. And not only do we use words, we also use lots of nonverbals. You know, there's a lot you can say without even using words, right? There's a lot you can say with tone of voice. There's a lot you can say with eye contact. Yeah, depending on how many kids the Lord gives you, like you'll have some kids that words aren't enough. They've got to feel it. But you'll have some kids where you just look at them and they crumble. We do have, of our five, we have one that all it takes is a look and the heart melts and contrition comes in sort of genuine sorrow over sin. Well, we've had other kids that wasn't the case. Just a look didn't do it. And so there's both verbal but also nonverbal, tone of voice, eye contact, prayer even. That's when our kids knew they were in trouble is when their mom would start to pray out loud in the grocery store, in the car. She would just start talking to God and asking for his restraint, for his mercy, for his grace, for his wisdom. And they began to realize, okay, we've crossed over into dangerous territory. If she's verbally calling upon the Lord in this moment. But it also modeled something. It modeled just that God was present, that God was involved, that God was attentive, that this didn't just have to do with kids and parents, but even the Lord. So we'll talk about all those things today. Beginning with words of warning, turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel 3. And this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel about his calling. And so in some ways it's about an Old Testament prophet. But then by analogy, there's ways in which this is also about just anyone who's entrusted with the responsibility of declaring God's word or giving words of warning. Ezekiel 3, verse 17. Where the Lord says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So it's God saying to Ezekiel, okay, Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman of the household of Israel. And what you're watching for is, okay, walking according to the truth and where people depart from that truth. And that when I give you a word of what is right, what is holy, what is good, what is best, you're to declare that word to this household. Well, you can see where by analogy, parents could take a passage like this and go, okay, there's something we have to learn. Even though we're not watchmen of the church, it's a different context. And yet by analogy, we go, okay, this is somewhat about what parenting is. And if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. And again, this was more serious because this was a prophet that God had appointed in the nation of Israel. But again, you see the parallel for us. If the Lord in his word says, okay, the wages of sin is death, and here's the way of transgression and where it leads, and as parents, we just don't say anything. We, we have that truth and we don't speak it. Then it shouldn't surprise us if our kids go off and do all kinds of folly and wickedness. And we should feel a sense of responsibility for that if we've done nothing to warn them. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin 
and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So again, just that sort of pattern, that model of thinking is what we're talking about, that God gives us his word to teach it, to make his word known to our children, and then to use words of warning when they depart from that way. Number one, about sin as a whole. So I find that, yeah, from young, we ought to be just sharing with our kids that the wages of sin is death. That sin is not a small thing, it's a serious thing. And most importantly, that we actually, that's a real category that we talk about. Do we live in a world that doesn't think that's a real category? And there's a whole lot of churches that don't even think that's a real category anymore. Just sin as a category. That's one of the things we're actually introducing with our kids, is just sin as a real category. That when you act hatefully toward a sibling, when you lie, when you steal, that's not just a mistake, that's not just an error, that is a sin against God. And that the wages of sin is death. So about sin as a whole, I think there have to be words of warning, but also about specific actions in a particular moment. There's just going to be times where you see your child flirting with sin, flirting with danger in a particular moment. You see their, their anger beginning to boil up, and you can tell they're about to do something rash. And so you warn them, yeah, don't act in anger, because man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Or about heart posture and direction of life. There's just going to be times where you observe patterns in the lives of our kids that just show a, a dangerous direction, a stubborn, proud posture of heart. And so this isn't necessarily a specific kind of sin or misbehavior. This is, you're just seeing a direction, a, a way of life forming, a proud posture of heart, and you're calling attention to that. You're warning about that. You're praying that God would soften them in that. You're encouraging them to pray that God would soften them in that. And so those all have to do with words. You know, in past weeks, we've talked a lot about just formative training, formative use of words, where we're just laying God's word before them, teaching them about who God is, about how he works, about their need for him. Well, this is about corrective. Now we've laid that before them, and we see them going against it. God said, don't steal, and they just stole. Even if it's a cookie, even if it's just a Lego from a neighbor's house. I remember my dad, yeah, we get home after going to a grocery store. I was probably eight years old at the time. And he walks into my room. I've got a Hershey bar. And he looks and goes, huh, where'd you get that? And, of course, I didn't expect to have that conversation at that moment. So I said, well, the, the, the store. How'd you get it from the store? Um, it was just there. I said something like that. Didn't take long for him to realize you stole this. Well, that led to words of warning, but also reproof, and then getting in the car and driving all the way back to the grocery store with an already opened Hershey's bar and money from my piggy bank in order to go to that clerk, apologize, ask for their forgiveness, and just all those, it was probably an hour and a half of time, all over a candy bar. And some of it because my dad knew this isn't just about a candy bar. This is about the heart, you know, going against something that God has explicitly said, thou shalt not steal. And the wages of sin is death. And so we're going to go through this whole pattern that's going to involve in you, yeah, confronting you, reproving you, getting you to see the wrong, acknowledge the wrong, go make restitution and restoration, seek forgiveness be restored, and then hear about how in the gospel Christ died to pay for sin, and that that ultimately is the need, is for God's grace. So even if it's over a candy bar, or a cookie, or a Lego, it's looking, okay, what's, what's the sin underneath this that has to be warned against, that has to be reproved, that has to be confronted, knowing that, yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
words of admonishment, correction, and reproof. So there's words of warning, but then sometimes we then have to escalate that to words of admonishment or correction or reproof. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel 13. Where Samuel is going to tell Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait, and that Samuel would join him there, and they would offer sacrifice to the Lord that Samuel would. So in verse 8, it says that Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So here's Saul, who's a pretty nervous, insecure, unbelieving king, and Samuel goes, okay, you go to Gilgal and you wait for me, and we'll have a worship service. We'll, we'll offer sacrifice. That Samuel, as the prophet, as the priest, will do that. But Samuel didn't get there in the exact time. And we'll see how, even that, by God's design. And so the people start scattering. And so Saul panics. Okay, what am I going to do? This is falling apart. My soldiers are leaving. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Is that for Saul, the Benjamite, to do? And don't you love this in verse 10? And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. It's like right in that moment, as soon as he finishes. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Lots of parenting reproof starts with that question. What have you done? And this is something that even God models for us. What did, what's he going to say to Adam and Eve? What did you do? Did, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Now, he knows the answer to that question. But still, he's drawing, drawing Adam and Eve out. He's going to ask Cain the same thing. What have you done to your brother? Does his blood not cry out to me from the ground? So here Saul is going to ask, or Samuel's going to ask Saul this question, what have you done? And I find that's a really important question to ask our kids. We may have even witnessed it, we saw it, still ask them to verbalize it. What have you done? Even if it's striking their sibling and you watched it, even if it's throwing a temper tantrum, even if it's, yeah, stealing or lying, in that question, okay, what have you done? God's built something into that question where you have to stop and think about, what am I going to do now? Am I going to cover it up? Am I going to make an excuse? Am I going to defend against it? Or am I going to own it? Well, verse 12. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed. So there's a tip off, like, what have you done, and what does Saul begin by talking about? When I saw who? Yeah, the people, and then what else? Samuel, you didn't come. So ultimately, this isn't really about me. This is about the people scattering and you being late. And that's what you want to hear your kids articulate, if that's where their heart is. That's why we don't want to just give them the answer to the question. We want to say, okay, what, what have you done? Well, Jimmy, well, you know, Mom, you, well, you know, and whatever it is, because that's part of what you're wanting to draw out is their own resistance to owning sin, their own resistance to confession, And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. This gets really interesting. So now there's this real threat of Philistines coming down. And what's his motivation for offering the sacrifice? I have not sought what? The favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So it was even a noble thing. Yeah, the, the people were scattering. Samuel, you didn't come. 
yeah, the Philistines are going to attack. And I realized, you know what? I hadn't really sought God's grace yet. So I forced myself to do the right thing and seek God through this burnt offering. Of course, is Samuel deceived? Verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Just cuts right through it. Now, you want to see the excuses coming out, but then when all those excuses, you have to, we have to be really clear-minded about what it actually was. Now, there's actually no excuse for this sin. There's no excuse for doing wrong. So he goes from what have you done to you have done foolishly to outright labeling of Saul's action. And I think that that's really important in discipline with parenting is we have to be ready to, to name things what they are. That was foolish. That was sinful. Why is that hard in this day and age? Why is that sometimes hard as parents? Yes. Oh, I think it's I I think that's the heart and soul right there of the trouble that we have is this modern conception of love as only affirming. This modern conception of love as you would never say something that would make them feel bad about what they've done, about the decisions they've made. So to just call it sinful, to just call it foolish, just feels like, okay, that, that can't be loving. And so we have to see here that that's precisely how love talks. We just looked at it in Ezekiel 3, right? If I say to the wicked, you've acted wickedly and called them to repent and you just don't say anything, they're going to die in that sin and their blood's on your hands. And so we have to realize, okay, there is, God has a whole other definition of love that is higher and better than what the world offers so that we would say, no, this is love to name this. It is love to have the category. It is love to reprove them with words so that they would see. Sometimes folly is simply unwise, but at other times folly is sinful. And this is where Samuel takes the conversation. Next verse, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God. And just to, again, frame it that way. Because as soon as you say that, you have not kept the command of the Lord. Who do you immediately bring into the conversation with your child? This isn't just about me and you. It's about them and who. You and God. That's so important from a young age. You haven't kept the command of the Lord. You haven't kept his law. You haven't obeyed what he has spoken. Now, it may be at whatever age they're at, you haven't explained that part of right and wrong to them before. And so you realize, okay, this is a time actually to teach. This is a time to explain what is right. But if this is something, okay, you've been clear on, this is something you've taught, you've read from scripture, now you just go straight to, you have not kept the command of the Lord with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. I shared last week, especially when our kids were young, we found ourselves often saying, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And usually it was their siblings. That God commands that we love our neighbor. And therefore, often the reproof was, you haven't loved your neighbor. You've thought first about yourself. And you've actually been unkind or harsh to your neighbor. Or in other words, number three, you have done wrong. You have sinned against the Lord. And again, this is a pattern we see in Scripture, just of the Lord, whether it's Adam and Eve, whether it's Cain, whether it's here with Saul, just making it clear, yeah, you have done wrong. 1 Samuel 13, 8, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went to Gilgal. 
The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Gibeah of Benjamin. And so, yeah, Saul doesn't back down. But he's just clear, yeah, you haven't kept this command. You've done wrong. And there's now going to be the announcement of consequences, which is the next step. And those consequences are you're going to lose the kingdom. God's going to give it to someone else. Now, thankfully, our consequences usually aren't quite that drastic. Not that this is drastic. Not that this is too much. But rather, we're not usually operating on that scale. But even when there's verbal admonishment, correction, and reproof, there is sometimes with that the announcement of consequences. There's going to be consequences to what you've done. Now, you're going to see from Saul some degree of contrition. You're going to see him say, yeah, I've sinned. I've done wrong. But what some of that really shows is maybe this temporary acknowledgement of the sin, but yet his heart isn't going to change. Because at this point, after all this, and even God announcing through Samuel, you're going to lose the kingdom, could he have been repentant and changed his life? By God's grace, yes, but he's not going to. He's going to escalate it. It's going to get so much worse. And that's where you're going to begin to see physical consequences enter into Saul's life. Samuel's already announced him, you're going to lose the kingdom. But then Saul's going to respond to that by just escalating his sin, rebelling even more, going to a witch of Endor, such that it's even going to cost him his life. But then fifth step is the invitation to acknowledge wrongdoing and seek restoration. So what have you done? You have done foolishly. In other words, you have done wrong. You've sinned. Here's an announcement of consequences and an invitation to acknowledge wrongdoing and seek restoration. I think that's in many ways just a pattern that you'll find is often the pattern of verbal discipline with your kids. Okay, I want to, I want to hear you acknowledge that this was wrong. Acknowledge that this was sinful. And knowing that if they're not a believer, that, doesn't, that may not be as deep as you'd want it to be. Want it to be. If they're not a believer, though, you still want to see something, just some acknowledgement. I can't tell you how many hours our kids spend in their rooms or sitting somewhere reading, right, just to get them to a point where they'll acknowledge that what they did was wrong. Because there's just something in the human heart that just doesn't want to do that. Something in a child's heart that just doesn't want to do it. I don't want to acknowledge that what I did was wrong, that what I did was foolish. But that's some of what you're praying to see, you're wanting to see, is that acknowledgement. And with that acknowledgement, you're going to offer words of restoration. You'll see that point C there. You're going to talk about how Christ has provided a way of reconciliation. That's the good news of the gospel. That when there's the acknowledgement that, yeah, I've done wrong, people say, and you know what, that's why God sent his son Jesus into the world, is because we've all done wrong. And none of us can fix it. None of us can pay for it. And praise God, you don't have to. But that's why Jesus had to die. That's why his body had to be crucified. That's why his blood was spilled, to actually make an atonement for your sin. And, and sometimes we'll say to our kids, and if the sin you just committed was the only sin that was ever been committed in the history of the world, Jesus still would have had to die just for that. Well, Dad, all he did was steal right. But that one sin is against a holy God and therefore an infinite offense against this God. And even that sin would have taken his son dying to pay for it. And so at some point, you're going to be, you know, when you see that acknowledgement of wrongdoing or hear that acknowledgement of foolishness, that that's usually the invitation then to talk about how God in Christ has provided a way of reconciliation, a way that your sin can be forgiven, can be atoned for. You're going to talk about how Christ provides forgiveness. That we're going to offer forgiveness as parents, but only because Christ first provides it. We forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And so we're going to forgive and express that forgiveness. And then it's really important, even as a parent, that when that acknowledgement is given, when you talk about the reconciliation that is theirs in Christ, when you then offer that forgiveness, that our own attitude and countenance has to change. And depending on what it is that happened, like I remember there were times where, yeah, I would 
we would give our kids specific instructions about how to do things or not do things, about, for example, not playing soccer in the living room with a real soccer ball. And then there's a broken window. And now, okay, there's the acknowledgement of the wrong or the foolishness. There's the forgiveness offered, but I know this is still going to take time, money, and inconvenience over the next couple of days to take care of this. And, and now my heart posture has to really believe this. Like if they've acknowledged the wrong, I've given forgiveness, even if it hurt, am I now going to restore what was broken? Attitudinally, relationally, and so there's ways as parents we can bear grudges. There's ways as parents, you know, that the offenses can add up in such a way that if the gospel isn't necessarily clear in our own minds and working and filtering through us, that just the offenses of your kids against you over the years can build up and resentment can build up. And so just to know just this whole process of words of restoration is as much you believing and living out and carrying out gospel truths and promises, not just getting your kid to believe it and understand it. So any questions, comments, reflections on this words of correction section? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good, I think it really depends on if, if you believe your child is born again and regenerate. Because if they're not regenerate, I don't know how sincere they can truly be. And so if there is the acknowledgement of wrong, the acknowledgement of yes, this one, even if it's slightly genuine, I accept it. I like seize it, especially at young ages as they're coming up. Because again, you're just, sometimes we want, as parents, we just want to arrive here really fast. And to just a, a humble, godly sorrow that is producing repentance without regret and just a desire for Christ to cover them and restoration, reconciliation, the relationship with the Lord and you. And you may be a decade away from that really being there. And so you're, you are trying to put some of the pieces in place. And so if you just see one of those pieces and there's just an acknowledgement of wrong, then grab it. Go, we'll take that. Um, and then restore based on those terms. Um, yeah. Say, you'll, you'll see it too when you're walking your own kids, if there's been a conflict and you've called them to acknowledge they're wrong in that conflict, to seek forgiveness, to forgive one another. You will find varying degrees of genuine in that. Like You may have to pull teeth through it. But depending on their age and what they're capable of, I think, and that's where you have to pray for wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom that what I'm seeing is enough. Um, otherwise, yeah, you will be there for days, just waiting for them to do something that they may not even be capable of as they do it. I think some of it, as we walk through that passage with Saul and Samuel, Saul should have known better. There's just something, and even you're seeing a level of acknowledgement of sin by the end with Saul, but it's only because Samuel's announced, yeah, you're going to lose all this. Uh, and now it gets his attention. But until then, I mean, he's blaming Samuel, he's blaming Philistines, he's blaming the people, he's, and he's even declaring his sinful sacrifice good. Um, and, and Samuel thinks you should have known better. But any other, yeah, questions, reflections on that? Well, Christ-centered discipline also involves the use of physical consequences. There's going to be times where our children either, one, sin in such a way, or two, refuse verbal correction in such a way that physical correction is needed. And this could mean, in my mind, several different things. One, it could mean physical redirection. And I find that when, if you've got little ones, babies, toddlers, there's a lot of physical redirection. And that is a kind of physical discipline, if you will, a physical correction, redirection. You're simply picking up a small child to move them away from whatever that temptation or danger could be. You tell them, don't put your finger in the outlet, and then they keep going back toward that outlet, and you're just gonna pick them up and put them somewhere else. 
you know, they just, there's a glass of something on the counter and they're just, they just want to reach and grab it and you're just going to move them a little bit down. And so I find that, that that is a kind of physical discipline, if you will, redirecting them. And so you're going to look for ways, especially with small children, how do we just take them out of temptation, things that are too great for them in those moments. And so a lot of physical correction with toddlers is redirection. A verbal statement about an action being wrong, I do think it's important to say that. Even with a toddler verbalizing, no, or this is wrong. And that object being off limits, followed by removing them from the immediate temptation. And any of you who've had kids who are crawling and then all of a sudden they learn to pull up on things, the landscape of sin increased exponentially, right? The landscape of danger. And then you see it in their eyes. They think they've conquered the world because now the stuff that is available to them to grab a hold of, to get into, and that's just a stage of parenting that feels so physically exhausting because you're constantly redirecting. And that's where you go around and you put every single device you can imagine on your cabinet doors, every possible device that you know you can think of in every place they can get to, barriers, because that's all about redirection. How do we keep them um, out of danger. And if children, our children keep returning to that thing that we've made off limits or set their jaws to stiffen up with sort of fire in their eyes, that's why I think Kevin made the comment when somebody asked, how do you know when it's time to start physically disciplining, spanking, whatever it is? And I think he said, you'll know. And one way you'll know is that toddler will reach for something and you'll say, no, as you have before, that's, don't touch that. That's wrong to touch. And they look at you, and you can tell, oh, they comprehend. They know. There's a look in their eye. There's a set in their jaw, and they just grab it. That's usually when you know, okay, we've entered new territory, where this isn't just about ignorance. This isn't just about they've never known this before. This is about they have understood what you've communicated, and they've set their jaw and set, stiffened their neck that's why God used that kind of language in Scripture. For the, these are stiff-necked people. They stiffen their neck against what you've declared. That's usually when you know, okay, this is beyond just redirection. This is beyond just a verbal rebuke. It also means physical removal of privileges. <clears throat> there are different times, different seasons with our kids where kids just went to bed hungry. They didn't eat dinner. And that's because they sit down and once again grumble about the food that's put in front of them. So a nine-year-old sits at the table and just goes, yuck. I actually remember that, being a kid, I think I was maybe seven years old, sat down at the table with what was in front of me, and the first word out of my mouth was yuck. And my dad reached over, took my plate of food, and put it onto his plate, and then handed me the, the plate back and just said, you can sit there till we're all done. And I sat there and watched everybody eat. He ate his plate, he ate mine. And that was it. It's the only time I ever sat down at a table and said that. Because I realized, okay, that's, you're going to complain, you don't eat. And the message got through. Well, that's an example of a physical removal of privileges. And the older kids get, you get into teenage years, and that becomes a, a, a pretty common way of interacting around consequences. Is Okay, you've misused this phone, you've misused this computer, you've misused this thing. Okay, it's it's going to be removed. We're going to take it away. Okay, you've abused the privilege of staying out to this time. Okay, you're, you're not going to get to stay out that late. It's just physical removal of privileges. And the older the child, the more those begin to make sense. The younger the child, the less it makes sense. And I'll see this a lot. As parents, we can, we can be tempted to, to, okay, we don't want to kind of engage in physical consequences or discipline. And so we just remove a privilege from a four-year-old and they're just not gonna comprehend it. Like, okay, the, the child, you know, grabbed a toy from somebody, from one of their siblings, and we say, okay, I'm just gonna remove the toy from you, and you don't get to use this toy for a week. Well, within three seconds, where's that four-year-old's mind? Onto something else. It's not gonna, it doesn't register in the same way. But the older the kids get, the more it'll register. Things that are really important to them, really precious to them, that, okay, you lose this when you transgress. But then thirdly, physical discipline. 
whether that's a swat or spanking, again, given in love, given with explanation, given with the goal of stirring confession, of helping them see the wrong and acknowledge it, seeking restoration, and bringing about reconciliation, that that's ultimately the goal. And we'll talk about that process here a little bit. I find that different parents with different kids under different situations make different decisions about what particular sins warrant physical correction. So just that's something that you and your spouse are going to have to think through together. You're going to have to pray through together. What kinds of sins under what kinds of circumstances with what particular kid is going to require what kind of response? I think almost all Christian families should be prepared to discipline their children with swats or spankings. I think I shared last week, I've sat with Christian families and couples have said, yeah, we've decided we're just not gonna spank. And they've got two kids under, under three and they wanna have many more. I try to encourage them, number one, okay, what does scripture teach on it? But secondly, you may get a child that doesn't really require it. Maybe you get two where verbally you're able to confront where verbally you're able to reprove, where you're able to remove certain things, and it, and it gets through to them. But I can't, at some point, God's gonna give you a kid where if you love that child's soul, you're gonna have to add that to your repertoire. So I encourage that every Christian family at least needs to have it in the bag. You needs, at least need to be ready to go there. And again, different kids are gonna require different kinds of responses, but you at least need to be ready I was sharing with Stephen earlier. So, my, yeah, my dad, you know, crafted his own paddles from pine, a standard thickness, standard size, standard handle, because he wanted maximum lightness with maximum sting. And it was effective. I mean, he did his research. In the sense of it wouldn't injure because it was light, but it would sting. You remembered it. And he had a paddle that hung in every bathroom of our house right next to the toilet. And so everywhere you saw, just, yeah, the, the wages of sin right there can happen. And it's something that, yeah, and I, of, of the four of us, I was by far spanked the most. I mean, there, there's, I may have been spanked more than my three sisters combined. And you know what? I look back and have no resentment. No, yeah, I, I look back and I'm thankful and grateful because again, the way it was done, the way it was talked through, and it was just so clear, yeah, I deserved this. It didn't mean, it didn't mean there weren't moments where I was upset about it or wish it wasn't true, but usually I was just upset because I got caught. But I look back now and go, okay, it, what if my parents just didn't, didn't bother, didn't care, it's just too time consuming, and just let me go my way? Well, I wouldn't be here. Could be dead by now. At least when you read what scripture really teaches about it. So I look back and saw it as mercy, kindness, love. And I say that so that as parents, we'll, again, think in the, that's how the Bible talks about discipline. That in a healthy relationship, motivated by love, this is a loving act. But we do need wisdom. We do need discernment. We do need love from the Lord. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son. What a statement. And some people would argue that that rod is the rod of verbal reproof. And you look at the context of a lot of these verses in Proverbs, and it just can't, that can't be what he's saying. Because there's just too many other verses where he's specifically talking about words. And then he's going to say things like, if you strike him, he will not die. And so it has to be a reference to physical discipline. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs twenty two fifteen folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs twenty three thirteen do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. And that's why I said last week, if we don't discipline our children, there is a devil who will. And he has no mercy. And ultimately even, there's a God who will. And that's some of what we're trying to prepare our kids for, that, okay, whatever this temporary physical pain is, it's better than death. It's better than death in your sin, and then you go to hell. 
And that's what, why God is giving us this. Children will survive loving physical discipline. They will not survive their sin. Not without Christ. Children will recover quickly from a swat of correction, but they won't recover from hell. Not ever. And so physical consequences are intended to give a brief and immediate experience of pain in order to steer our children away from a very long-term, irrecoverable kind of pain. And we're just asking that the Lord would use that to alert them to their need for a Savior. Any questions about that before we get into the specifics of spanking? Any comments, reflections? Kevin? Yeah, I think that, that right there is even an example that you know, a, a door can be taken off a door jam and stored if, you know, if either one, using that privacy in sinful directions or using that door in, in sinful expressions. Yes, certainly TVs and cell phones and technological kinds of equipment, but even, yeah, free time. Or, or even you brought up money, like I think there's restitution that sometimes has to be made. Okay, you broke this in anger. You're gonna have to work to pay for this. And that's a kind of removing of privileges, a sense of now you, your money gets to go toward this, not toward that. But that's also the imposing of a physical cost, a physical consequence that just makes sense. And so restitution, restoration, um, but then other times, yeah, even if it's, okay, they're driving and they're showing real foolishness and sinfulness in terms of how they're using their time out there with friends and, and that car can be taken away and removed. And, and again, I think there has to be conversation there. There has to be prayer there. There has to be explanation of why this is. Um, but it goes back to, you know, our kids can live without it. But what they can't live without is just humility. <laughs> they can't live without honoring authority. And that's some of what we're trying to prepare them for. I think we talked about some last week. We're trying to prepare them to honor all the authorities of their life. Okay, how you interact with me is going to have a difference. in Okay, how you relate to your teachers, how you relate to your pastors, how you relate to police officers, how you relate to every authority you'll ever know, but especially God that here in our home, this is where we're gonna flesh this out, just your heart beneath authority, knowing that what natural human beings hate more than anything is authority, is somebody telling them what to do, someone actually telling them this is right, this is wrong. And so part of what we're trying to expose in our kids is that hatred of authority or that resistance to authority in order to show them how important it is, how good it is, for them to learn to submit and honor authority. Um, because, yeah, out in the world, authorities are gonna be far more ruthless than hopefully we are. And that's what we're trying to prepare. And so yeah, just removing privileges is part of that. Yeah, Brad. Very what? Violent, Violent. yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, the reason they're, they're being disciplined is we're fed up rather than it, what they did was wrong. That, and so, yeah, I think just, yeah, if it, was everybody able to hear that? Just kind of walking through the, how our own countenance, our own posture, our own motivations are important. And anytime you know, okay, you've disciplined in anger, or I've known, okay, I disciplined in anger, that was actually me yeah, what they did was wrong, but the way I went about disciplining was in my own frustration. Then the next step is I have to repent, and I have to seek their forgiveness. And that doesn't assuage in any way their own culpability in what they did, but you want to make it really clear that when I discipline sinfully, I'm going to own that because I want them to see that. There's such a thing as you know, right discipline and wrong discipline. There's another hand here. Yeah, that speaks a little bit to the next point there of just conditions for spanking. What are sort of the conditions? And, and this is where you're going to have to think through, pray through, talk through what you want those conditions to be. I know for Ruth and I, we had three that were sort of automatics. One was sort of an, an outright um, blatant lying. So for us, blatant lying where they, they look at you in the face and just tell a lie. Like for us, that was, a, that was a condition for spanking. Second was a stubborn refusal to heed correction or discipline. And that maybe gets a little bit to what you're talking about. Where it's clear there was understanding, there was clarity, there was warning. The jaw is set, the, the neck gets stiff, and just blatant disobedience. Or what the Bible called you know, high-handed rebellion. That that's what that was. And then third was just any kind of act of hatefulness toward another person. And part of why I think we, we landed in those three areas is we thought, okay, when you go to the Bible, what are the things that when that seed grows into something, God ends up killing them for it? Like it's something that God's going to take out. And we found, okay, high-handed rebellion is one of those things. There's just, David had some kids, and Eli had some sons, where just high-handed rebellion and disregard for the Lord led to their death. And so we thought, okay, if that leads to death, I think we want to spank for it. Um, hatefulness toward a sibling or a neighbor that, something that sort of showed this, this seed of sort of murderous impulse almost where, okay, that's something that we want to spank. And then just blatant lying that signaled a kind of deceitfulness, a kind of duplicity and a comfort in it that we thought, okay, that's something we want to drive far from because that kind of deceitfulness and deception um, takes them down a road that is going to end in their destruction. So for us, those were three biggies, blatant lying, high-handed rebellion, and any act of hatefulness toward another person or a sibling. Because when those seeds take root and sprout and blossom in a person's life, they do pave the way for death. You know, Moses is a good example. There, again, there's, we can't, it's not a direct correlation because God was calling Moses to something very specific, to go back to Egypt to bring his people out. And yeah, God's covenant with Abraham said, yeah, you circumcise your sons. And so God had told Moses, yeah, you got to circumcise your son. And for various reasons, one of them probably yielding to his wife, Zipporah, Moses refused. And in Exodus 4.24, it says, and at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Like, that's the consequence. Like, you, you're not going to do this? 
just high-handed rebellion against this covenantal seal and symbol, then I'll take you out and find somebody else. And so to me, those are sort of clues that the God who is the God of Scripture is the God who is the God today in the Lord. And, and so we want to see that and go, okay, well, then I want to I prepare my kids to know that God and to walk with that God and to fear that God and to honor that God. And it not be just for the sake of terror, but a humble reverence for the Lord. Yeah, methods for spanking. This is where, again, you're going to have to work out and decide whether that's a swat on the hand of a young child, especially, you'll find small kids, toddlers especially, so much of the trouble that they create is with their hands, grabbing things, doing, doing things that they're told not to do. And so if that's a swat of the hand, and again, the, the point isn't to injure. It's to, there's something about that pain that hits that alerts that child, almost snaps them out of whatever sinful funk they were walking in and gets their full attention on what you have instructed and told them to do. And hopefully in such a way that helps them see this is relational and that they now desire some kind of comfort and reassurance from you. Or it may be, yeah, wooden spoon on the back of the thigh or the butt. I said last week, I mean, there's a reason the Lord put a bunch of fatty tissue on the rear end. It just maximum sting and no injury. But as Brad shared, that's got to be loving. It's got to be well explained. It's got to be not in anger. Because what you're wanting to come through is, okay, this is about their sin, their relationship to the Lord and to you and to others, and their good and their welfare. Or use of a paddle, that was my parents' implement of choice. Hard enough to bring genuine tears and to make them draw near, but not so hard as to injure. Not so hard as to, again, to break or to crush in some way. Because again, you don't want them thinking for one minute that this is just about you venting. And I think I said last week as well, there's... There's times in which if, if you spank and they're angry and their jaw is set and they pull away, that's usually an indicator you didn't spank hard enough. That's typically what that signals. Because if there's, you spank hard enough but not too hard, what you'll see in your child is a desire for drawing near to you. That's what you want to see, is that when it's over, they want a hug. There's just something, I think, by God's design that he built in there. That when in the context of a loving, healthy relationship, there's the right measure of discipline brought and pain brought, that they want consolation from the one that disciplined them. And that, I, I think that's there between a parent and a child because that's how it is between God and his children. That God disciplines us in such a way that our response is meant to be to go to him, not from him. And that's some of what you're looking for. Which leads to the process for spanking where there's some kind of formative teaching, then followed by a transgression, and then a warning, and then continued disobedience, and then the announcement of discipline, and then the explanation of that discipline, and then the act of discipline, and then some process of restoration that involves them confessing their wrong or their sin, them seeking forgiveness in some way, some kind of restoration, us offering that forgiveness, and then giving them affirming words and usually some kind of, and I always encourage some kind of physical contact because you've just physically disciplined them, so you want some kind of physical consolation. A hug, holding them, praying with them, reaffirming your love for them. And that's what I tend to call the discipline arc. And that's kind of that last section you see there in your notes is kind of a discipline arc where there's hopefully, as we've talked about all this semester, all this formative teaching of children from the Word of God, formative teaching and preparing them for life in God's world. And then there's going to be moments now where they transgress that formative teaching. And now you have a moment of corrective discipline. And that initial corrective discipline will often be a verbal warning or a verbal reproof. And so you deliver that. And then in response to that warning or that reproof, they simply continue in that transgression. 
that high-handed rebellion. And now, in response to that, there's going to be an announcement of consequences. Okay, you have, you have done foolishly. You have chosen sin. You have done wrong, even after warning. So now there's going to be discipline. But then there's going to be an explanation of that discipline. It's because I love you. It's because your soul is precious. It's because God loves you and has given a law for us to follow for our good, and you've disobeyed that. So now there's going to be consequences to alert you to the real peril of sin, to the real danger, and to invite you to acknowledge that sin and that wrong and to seek forgiveness. You're going to explain it and walk it through, and then you're going to deliver those consequences, that act of discipline. And in doing that, you're then going to draw them near and inviting them now to confess their wrong and acknowledge that what they did was wrong, that what they did was sinful, or whatever words you would want to use. And then as they acknowledge that, you then basically walk through in two minutes or less the gospel. Here's your need for Christ. Here's, the avail- here's forgiveness that is available to you. And then some kind of restoration of the, the, the relationship. And I shared last week that usually what Ruth and I wanted to see also at the end is our kids thank us for the discipline, which may sound mean. It isn't. Because what we're wanting to cultivate in them is this heart that appreciates discipline that's done in love, that is thankful and grateful for the people in their life that are going to take the time to teach them and to correct them and to help spare their souls a whole lot of pain. And so that's that discipline arc. And so, oh man, it's late. What I was hoping to do is to break up into groups and actually give you a scenario and have you as a group walk through that. And I'll just have to send it with you. So here's your assignment, here's your homework. So you've got a, you've got a kid, any, between ages of five or nine, you decide, boy or girl, five or nine, you've just baked these cookies for a church event, you've got them sitting on your counter, and you catch that child sneaking upstairs with one of those cookies. And so what I want you to walk through is how are you going to address that situation with them? And then after you've addressed it that first time, then four hours go by. And you catch them once again sneaking upstairs with one of those cookies off that plate. How are you going to address that situation? What I want you to do, so this afternoon or around lunch or whenever that may be, as husband and wife or if you're with another couple, walk through that scenario with that discipline arc. Right? If you can remember all those steps that we just kind of walked through. There's hopefully formative teaching where honesty and stealing isn't a new concept. Okay, well, then there's the initial transgression. Well, how are you going to address that first one? Okay, but then a few later, there's now a repeat of that transgression. They just continue in that direction. Okay, now, what consequences are you going to announce? How are you going to do that? How are you going to explain it? What discipline are you actually now going to give? And then what are you going to ask them to do in response to that discipline? And under what conditions are you going to then offer forgiveness? And if they seek that forgiveness, what are you going to say next? How are you going to explain the gospel? then how are you going to land in a place where they actually appreciate the discipline that you've given? Does that make sense, that discipline art? So that's your homework for this afternoon. Either you as a couple or find another couple with you, whatever it be, to take that scenario and walk through that whole process. Any final questions or comments before we wrap up? Evan. Sure. Yeah. Like objective, like this is godly discipline, regardless of what 
Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, I think there's always a danger of taking good, clear, truthful things God has said and distorting and twisting it and justifying it. So it's always when you teach God's word, even clearly, someone can always take it and misuse it. So I think there's certain markers that you can say, okay, if this is present, this is more toward abuse than godly discipline. One is if there's injury, if there's physical injury, like there should never be bleeding and serious bruising and or it being done in a part of the body that is especially demeaning or injurious. So I think that's one of the, the clearest. I think second, when the clear tone, atmosphere, and motivation of the whole thing is anger or resentment or vengeance or getting even, where that's the disposition. Or thirdly, where the overall health of the relationship is bad. Like, you, you're just... You don't say encouraging things. You don't spend time with your kid. You don't have any kind of positive, encouraging imprint upon your child because you, you largely don't have a healthy relationship with them, and yet you're still driving home discipline. I think that, so the context of that relationship is also going to matter. I think a fourth is if you're disciplining around just your own personal sets of rules that God wouldn't recognize as any way related to his own. Like they're just, yeah, literally spilled milk or mistakes or missteps or where the discipline is so out of proportion to what was actually done or what actually happened. I think that's another marker that it's, it's much more sort of abusive. I think a fifth is if it's just done, yeah, in a vacuum of any godly biblical explanation where the kid does something and you just react or respond and do it and there's no loving, gracious, gospel-centered explanation of what's actually happening. So lazy discipline can be where you're just wanting quick, expeditious, nip it in the bud and you're not actually taking the time to walk them through it. Um, those would be five. I mean, there may be more, but those would be, yeah. Well, let me pray for us. We'll Father, we are grateful that you are a father who loves us, who cares for us, who chastens us, who disciplines us, but always for our good. And we pray that you would make us fathers and mothers who reflect you well, who image you well in this area. Pray that you would give us a great love for our children and a love that takes time um, with our children to teach them, to train them, to discipline them, correct them, but all of it for your reasons and all of it toward faith in Christ, and all of it for your glory, and all of it for the true spiritual good of our children. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.